Hello and Namaste. This is Jyoti Bhattrai. Welcome to Med School Supendao. This podcast is hosted by a med student who is going to the med schools for the second time. And this podcast is intended to bring in hope and about never giving up attitude and second chances. I will be sharing my stories alongside with my colleagues, other med students, about things related to med school, their struggles and stories, and the process and many more. We will talk about life and how day-to-day things and events can have an impact on a med student. We will be having interviews with med students and doctors along the way. Welcome again to Med School 2.0. And now, let's begin with this episode. As promised, we restart from where we left at. Here's the second part of the episode. Um, I have to say thank you to NYT.com to have a program called EPP, mm-hmm. the Immigrant Physicians Program. Uh, we just had a, a, a program yesterday or day before with AMSA, um, and they, they asked a few of the EPP people to come and talk to to the students. I was one of the speakers, and and when I was saying that, uh, it's there were around like thousand plus people applying, and only thirty five got in, and I was the lucky one out of those thirty five. It's easier to be in this part of the wall and say like, "Yeah, I got in," and I'm like second year medical school. If I hadn't, if I hadn't gotten today, I, I don't know what my you know status would be, what I was would be doing, or my my thinking process would be. So it's 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 a very, it's a very. Uh, it's it's very uh i don't i'm lost at words to explain it's very very uh, satisfying to be in this part of the wall because i as a i'm also a a a, a student ambassador for our school so i have been in contact with the future uh, people who have been applying for as an epp and I, i can hear their stories and i feel like you know what i was in the same shoes as you were right now yeah please don't give it yeah keep on trying because I keep on telling people I'm not special. I'm like I'm a very ordinary guy and I got in. Mm-hmm. So if I can get in you or you, the other people must be so much more talented than me then you would definitely get in. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm, I'm very very thankful for uh, for for you for NYT Comfort to have this program to be in. Can we explore more on what EPP holds for you or what EPP means to you as as sure. a student in? So uh you know the EPP Emigrate Physicians program um it's a program that's been around for a long time, actually, because uh, it was uh, it was around when I was a medical student here. So that was a little over 20 years ago that uh, the program was around. And so people that graduated with me were immigrant physicians. So it's kind of uh, exciting. Uh, it's, a, it, I, it's a part of, I think, the NYTCOM culture and uh, history that we have this program. And I think it matches our kind of location in the world, you know, being in New York, being kind of like, you know, the area where it's like the melting pot of the world where people from all around the world come to live in this area. And uh, so, you know, and it fits a mission, you know, it fits a mission of, um, you know, initially it was uh, to help physicians that were from certain parts of the world that, um, that were culturally being um, uh, challenged by their governments and, you know, the, and they came to the United States for a better life. And when they were physicians, they came to the United States and they weren't being able to get roles as a physician, but their dream and desire was to be a physician again and practice. And so they made the program specifically for them. And what's really been interesting is over the years, seeing the different populations that come, Uh, you know, because 
uh, it's changed from the time I was a student to today. And I think today we have a more diverse emigre physician program than we've ever seen before. And what I think is really interesting is it allows students, and it definitely allowed me, to see how medicine is done in different places. So um, one of my best friends from medical school and residency, uh, he was a physician in Bangladesh, and he came to the United States. Um, He worked in all sorts of jobs outside of medicine because he just couldn't get a role in the medical field. And then we uh, did residency together, and it was amazing because, like, I think myself and my co-chief, like, we were able to help him with some of the challenges that he was facing with, like, uh, patients in the United States are their own breed of people sometimes. Uh, They can be very challenging, and they come in, you know, they don't read a script. And, you know, like, when I do global health work, I see patients all the time that come in, and they dress up in their Sunday best to come and see the physician, um, you know, and they try to put their best foot forward for the, because it's a big deal to see your doctor in the United States. It's not so much a big deal. So getting used to slang, getting used to, you know, um, cultural trends in the United States. And it was fun because I was able to work with him on that and share those experiences. And then he was able to ex- share his like longer experience in medicine with me. And so in a way it kind of makes both parties better right. because, the people that um, – because a lot of times what I've learned too is like when people come from outside of the country in the United States, they find their little enclave of their country here in the United States. And it's hard to like sometimes assimilate right. when you're the first generation in the United States. Um, and so having this opportunity to mix with your peers in this way is really phenomenal. Right. Uh, the other thing that was popping in my head uh, – when we started school uh, one year back, I can't believe I'm second year, but <laughs> <laughs> it goes fast. But it, it, it doesn't feel like it, it while you're in it. But it, it definitely goes fast. Uh, I I wanted to ask you as an associate dean, um, what did the COVID did to the curriculum? Like first year an anatomy lab and OMM lab, the DPR clerkships, and you know, uh, was it a hindrance? Uh, was it how how did he cope with with covid and also having those thousands of emails a day how how did you cope with that and what did i think what did covid in a way uh, teaches yeah so what was interesting is we were fortunate here because we had been as a faculty group so as faculty and administration we had been exploring the possibility of changing the curriculum uh from a lecture based where you'd be sitting in lecture from, you know, eight in the morning till 12, Monday through Friday, and then going to a lab in the afternoon, um, and then going back to the next lecture and that kind of thing. We had been exploring for years how we could change that and make things better. But um, the challenge was that we also knew that the old curriculum was working. And there's a fear that if we changed it, could we make something that doesn't function or doesn't work? And we had, but we also, so that was stifling our ability to change. Mm. COVID comes by and we said, whoa, this is an opportunity for us to put the ideas we had in in place or uh, that we had been planning into place um, because we couldn't teach the old way. Um, And so that worked out really good. So we were able to push for the idea of pre-recording lectures 
pushing them out, giving flexibility. So if people are sick, they could watch it at their own pace versus having to physically come into campus. Mm. Uh, it gave us flexibility for how the labs could function. Um, it challenged our perspective of what we could do. Mm. And so today it's like we have a vastly different curriculum than we had pre-pandemic. Right. And we are still now looking at ways to improve on it because it's not perfect. Right. But at the same time, it's a lot better than it was. Um, you know, it gives opportunities for like people like you to do these podcasts <laughs> because you're not stuck in a lecture right. uh, for four hours a day. You can actually make a schedule that works. It gives opportunities for people to do research right. more often. Um, what I've been learning, too, is a lot of our students are doing a lot of amazing community service work. So um, one of the students I was talking to the other day um, helps with a drug detox, like rehabilitation and counseling center uh, two days a week, she does. And it's only because she has the flexibility in her schedule to do that. Okay. And that's a field she wants to go into. Mm. So now she already knows people in residencies that like her. And so she'll have that opportunity to probably get those seats in those residencies. Right. Um, that if we were in the old way, she wouldn't have had that opportunity mm -hmm. until she got into third or fourth year. Wow. So I would say like, you look at challenges and take them as like opportunities, right. you know, and like don't like to shut down when like something gets challenging. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, all, we recently welcomed class of 2026 at, here at NYT.com and I've already made a few friends. Um, um, so when, when I talked to them, um, uh, what I got was they were feeling kind of, uh, imposter syndrome in a way. Um, uh, I also had, uh, an, an episode recording with, uh, two of the, uh, second years where we were kind of giving them advice to the first years if we're in that position i don't know we're in this position to to advise them but we, we tried our best to to help them through through the podcast and the most i got was like imposter syndrome what advice would you give them uh, as as a first year it's a tough one so <laughs> imposter syndrome i think affects so many people uh I mean, even I sometimes have that moment where uh, I'll be like, "Am I really meant to be here? Like, are, are they really like? Are they sure?" Um, down to like even like I, I've had that before, right before a race starts. Hmm. Like, I'll see all the other athletes that I'm racing with, and I'll say to myself, "I don't belong here." Uh, but I think the challenge is to figure out a way to flip that switch and say, if I'm in a position where I'm at that there's a reason I'm in this position. Very well. Um, yeah. You know, and it's a hard thing to do, you know. Um, you know, I know, like, for me, um, you know, being really young when I became an assistant dean and even an associate dean, I, I, I became an associate dean before I was 40, and that's not common um, to have happened. And so, you know, you have those moments where I go to academic conferences and I'd be the youngest person in my role by 20 years, and I'd be saying – do I, am I meant to be here? And then I started seeing moments where people would ask me questions mm. about how I'm doing things. Mm. And I started realizing I have something to contribute. So I think when someone feels that imposter syndrome type event happen where you're like, do I really belong here? Number one, if you're in medical school, know that we chose you because it's 
you know, have something. There's right. There's thousands of people that apply for every single seat. And so if you're in medical school, it's because we saw something in you that makes you important to be here. Right. Um, you might not feel it, but understand someone else does. Hmm. And sometimes what I think is if you can't believe it for yourself, that but you know someone else believes it for you, ride on that until you, you believe it for yourself. Right. Um, you know, and like if it, I take it to the athletics, um, I remember uh, I had finished a race. Uh, I had done pretty decent in it. And I got done and I'm like, yeah, I just tried to do these things. And uh, one of the people I competed against go, said to me, they said, stop saying you're trying to do this. Just say you're an athlete. Wow. And as soon as I, like, that person said it, because I, you know, the person finished one spot ahead of me yeah. and he, with him saying it to me, it clicked in me. Like the moment that I stopped thinking that I'm just not one of the group. And the moment that I say to myself, and it is, it, you have to make that decision for yourself. Right. The moment that I said to myself, yeah, you know what? I do fit in like, this is my place. Then my confidence boosted. And then instead of me spending time and wasting time saying why I don't belong, I was able to focus on why I do belong. Right. Wow. Um, the other question that I have is because this <laughs> this uh, this uh, uh, directly impacts me and my fellow classmates. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, as an osteopathic student, we we have to. It's a must to give complex one, mm -hmm. but most of us also give step USML step one, right? Um, since. Uh, also, I, I love the fact that NYITCOM stands strong with um, mental health and mental well-being. But don't you think because of giving two exams and most of the people take it, I'm not sure how, how often, but on an average, what I've heard is like within 10, 12 days, 14 days, two weeks time, within that time period, they give a complex one first and then, then they give the USMLA mm -hmm. one. Don't you think that that puts uh, more mental pressure um, i mean that that stress on an, on, a, on a student and is there a way out or you know i was just trying to figure out what can be done with it sure so i mean i think the challenge is absolutely i think i think there definitely is a higher stress for osteopathic medical students uh to perform well because they have to perform oftentimes for the competitive fields on both uh, sets of boards, right. at least the early steps of the boards, so that uh, they can get into the residencies they want to get into. Um, now, I will say that like not all residencies require step one or step two for osteopathic students, but a lot of the more competitive ones certainly put that challenge out there. Um, I think some of the challenge, unfortunately, is a self-imposed challenge because years ago, Osteopathic students took Comlex and MD students took the USMLE. And it was a rare event that an osteopathic student took a, like a USMLE exam. Oh, wow. And then what happens with it, though, is more recently we had more and more osteopathic students taking the STEP exams. And so programs were saying, well, it's a lot easier for me to look at that mm -hmm. score instead of try to figure out how to like coordinate what a complex score would be to a USMLE mm. score. Um, so I think some, in some ways, you know, we as a profession are, 
our our past students have made an environment that makes it more challenging. Um, you know, and there's been changes to the way that uh, you know, with the single accreditation, mm. uh, removing like the pure osteopathic programs. You know, for you know, I, I think we're still going to learn down the road if that was a good decision or a bad right. decision. Um, I think it, in some ways, and this is my personal thought, not like representative right. of the school no, or yeah, the yeah. profession, yeah. but my personal thought is it was kind of a sad day when we lost those residencies and their distinctions because it definitely changed the profession. Mm-hmm. And I think there was still a role for the osteopathic distinctiveness of our field. Right. Um, and I see it slowly getting lost. Right. And um, so that's a challenge. What I do think is a positive, though, is the fact that MD students, as well as DO students, see as a problem. So you're seeing it mm. over and over with like AMA resolutions from the student bodies, uh, pushing for like the comics not to be a um, thing that causes discrimination like against like DO students. Right. Uh, versus the USMLE. So you see like MD students rallying on our side saying, you know, yeah, like either board should be good. You know, like like each board tests for ability to be competent Mm. and safe to provide care for for patients in the future because osteopathic medicine is its own field of medicine from MD or allopathic medicine. There there should be different ways of assessing. Um, You know, and... Having seen examples of both exams, you know, I, you know, there's like, I have 100% confidence that both sets of exams can test for competent physicians because every doctor I've gone to, both MD and DO, have taken one or both sets of those exams. And and they're all great and fantastic physicians. So um, it's a challenge. I I think for um, osteopathic medical students who, um, get overstressed with it. There's mm-hmm. always strategies mm-hmm. with how to and how to and when to take those exams, and that's always like a good thing to start discussing and thinking yeah. about. Thank you. Um, if you have to reflect back and say your accomplishments in your current tenure, what would that be? Also, um, what what would you say? What was your five years or ten years plan before you started? And do you think that you accomplished? that during this time period? Hmm. So I would say my five-year plan five years ago, I would never have imagined what I'm doing right now. Oh. So that was blown out of the water years ago. Um, what I've learned in my history uh, is every five to 10-year plan that I've put in place for myself, I've I've underestimated what I could do. Um, and what opportunities could come to me. Okay. Uh, and for that reason, I think one of the, like, I think one of my best, um, accomplishments in the last several years is to stop like putting limits to what I can do. Mm. Um, and I would say that to every student that I counsel or a mentor, um, you know, uh, junior faculty that I mentor that like, don't put limits to what you think you can do. So I think five-year plans, 10-year plans are good. But a lot of times, because the pace that medicine changes, right. because the pace that academics changes or the world changes, it's almost impossible to make a five-year plan that is actually going to fit with what five years from now looks like. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, like I've stopped saying things like, um, you know, thinking that I couldn't be an assistant dean or be a leader because 
it happened. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's exciting. You know, I, I think for me, um, the big thing that I keep trying to do in my life, I think one of my accomplishments is trying to stay as open right. to students and faculty as possible as I move up in academic leadership. Mm. Um, because one of the challenges that often happens with people as they move up in, through like the different ranks of uh, leadership is that there's a challenge of staying connected with where you came from uh, and the people that you're really serving. And so I think if I was to look at myself, honestly, I, th I think one of my greatest accomplishments would be keeping that servant mindset when I'm like leading. So I, I always like that servant leader mindset of, um, you know, I'm not leading for me. It's like I'm leading for other people. Yeah. Um, and so I always try to think of that role. So that's why, I have the open door policy for my office um, because I saw when people can't get access um, that it happens or even like putting my cell phone out to everyone at the start of the year. Uh, you know, I've had other people say to me, you must be crazy to give every student and faculty member your cell phone first day of school. And what I usually say is I'm grateful to do it because I literally maybe get one call or text a month yep. from someone but it's in that moment that if no one picked up that phone, the outcome would have been really terrible for that person. And so being able to like once a month or once every once in a while to be able to be able to pick up that phone and by picking it up, change how an outcome would happen, right. uh, change a person's life. I mean, I even give my cell number to my patients and uh, I tell them it's my cell number, not my office number. So I tell them. It's when it's an emergency that you can't figure out what to do next and you know the next answer is going to be something that harms you or a bad outcome for you, call me. You know, like that's what it's there for. And, you know, it just boosts you when right. you have that moment where you're like, okay, I could really help someone. Right. Yeah. I When I was thinking to ask you question, this question, I was also thinking about like life, life has its, its own plan. You you yeah. don't you don't plan and then life works with you. You you work with life. It's Absolutely, like, I got you, buddy. This is what you do. Absolutely, <laughs> because I had never imagined I would do medical school twice. One is enough. <laughs> well, I don't know how you're doing it because uh, I would agree. One time in medical school would be more than yeah, enough for exactly. me. <laughs> so life has its own plan, and then I I hadn't planned this. I would be doing this, but hey, I'm here. So yep. take it as it is and live in the moment. Be be present. Be where you are and try to make the best of your presence, I guess. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Other blazing, I couldn't say it better. <laughs> <laughs> the the last thing I want to ask, and I, I've been asking this to, I think, most of my guests that, that's been gracious enough to come to the podcast is, is there any medical myth that you think is there? And would you like to debunk that? Hmm. Medical myths, goodness, or, or uh, medical stu studying, medical school, anything related to it. Gosh, that's so hard. I mean, there's so many of them. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you mine. Yeah, is has nothing to do with studying. <laughs> yeah, is has nothing to do. People say like, oh, you're old. Oh my god, you're this old and going back to medical school. I'm second year. Watch me two years. I'm going to graduate and get into residency. So <laughs> I like that. You know, I'll piggyback on that. I think. Because um, I, I could pick up example after example, but I would say um, along that line of 
age and where you think you're set is that um, you can change at any time in life. Mm. You know, there's no, like, if you're in a situation or you're in, like, a health bind or something, and I've seen this with my patients year in, year out, um, and a lot of my patients have seen me in my health journey. Um, you know, I, like, I, five years ago, I weighed 40 pounds heavier than I do today. Um, and so some of my patients have seen that experience and change is hard and, and it's not easy. And I usually, there's a quote and I don't, I don't know who said it initially, but they said, there's no comfort in the growth zone and there's no growth in the comfort zone. Wow. And I like that. Yeah. And as long as you realize that early on, it means that there's nothing that should limit you in life. Um, and you know, like I would say, the like the the myth in the world is that like being that you can't change. Mm. Like everyone can change, everyone can grow, um, but when you change and grow, it's not comfortable, and mm. nor should it be. You know, like like it, there should be discomfort too, because when you, you have discomfort, then when you achieve something, you can have that exhilaration right. of like achievement and accomplishment. So. Mm. Uh, that's, I think that would be the myth I would try to bust is like, you know, change is possible. Yeah, it is indeed. Any last words out of lazy before we wrap up? No, I think I shared way too much. So (laughs) firstly, thank you. Thank you so much for, for giving me this opportunity. I know you're super busy and you're taking the time out to talk to me. It's like, I'm really, really appreciated. And thank you. Absolutely. You're very welcome. (laughs) And have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This means a lot to me. Please, please, please do share it down with the episodes. Write a review. Also, send me emails at medschool2.0podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram, medschool2.0. Please let us know where we can improve. And also, if there are certain issues and things you want to hear about, we can learn so much from one another. Till next episode, stay safe, stay healthy. Take care of yourselves, your friends and family and take care of your surroundings. I will catch you soon in the next episode. Bye for now.